Good morning, everyone. How are you this morning? I hope everyone is having a great morning so far. Two weeks ago, we began a new series called Invisible God and Invisible Hands. And the plan in this series is to immerse ourselves into the story of Esther. Now, what's most interesting about Esther is that if you read through it, there is no mention of God. There are no words from God, no visions, no miracles, no theological comments, not even moral teachings, nothing on the surface. You could pass it off as a secular book. You don't find God in this. But if you look deeper with a sincere heart, you come to find God everywhere, on every page, on every sentence, in every moment. And isn't that what your life and mine is like? Because on the surface, we don't see God or hear God or touch God. But those who seek Him with a sincere heart come to find that every moment of our lives are saturated with the invisible hands of the invisible God. So the book of Esther shows us, without showing God, that life is not a random sequence of events. But it's a story masterfully arranged by the hidden storyteller of our lives. In his hands, our story, there's no detail that is insignificant. No event is random and no person ex is excluded. This story is a story of salvation and grace. And he's upholding us and protecting us and guiding us through. This is what we mean by the providence of God. So in this series, we will enter the world of Esther and we will let its story enlarge our imaginations and inform our perceptions so that we come to see God in all things, to praise God in all things. Because the book of Esther reveals to us that even though God is not overt and His word not direct and His face not revealed, still behind the veil, the hidden God is upholding and delivering people into His good purposes. And so for the past two weeks, we've been looking at chapters one and two, and it's been kind of an introduction for us. It's describing for us the world that we are about to enter into. This is what life was like back then. The powerful Persian king is looking for a new queen, and he takes Esther, a young, beautiful Jewish exile, powerless in the middle of a powerful empire. Suddenly, she becomes the Persian queen. And behind the scenes, we also get a glimpse of Esther's older cousin Mordecai, who took care of her as an orphan, and is now guiding her through these turn of events. And all seems well. All seems well when you end chapter 2, but then suddenly chapter 3 comes and the plot thickens. Let me read to you the continuation of that story in chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agite, the son of Hamedatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. 
And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots before Haman, day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws. So it is not to the king's profit to tolerate. If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Haggagite, the son of Hamedatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. A very interesting chapter, is it not? Because now, Haman enters the story, and we quickly find out that this man is vindictive and manipulative, murderous, and now he gets all the power and leverage he needs and succeeds with approving his plan to annihilate the Jewish people. It's going to be a genocide. Where is God in this? What kind of invisible hands are we being invited to see in this chapter? Because on the surface, God is not here. So this morning... Let's search for God as we pay attention to these three things about the providence of God in our lives. What is it that complicates our trust in the providence of God? And what competes against our trust? But lastly, let's look at what can help us complete that trust in Him. Now, what complicates is immediately seen by Haman. Haman brings this out for us. And this is the question always at the back of our minds 
every time we talk about God's sovereign providence, why does evil succeed? Why do troubles overwhelm us? And what's interesting is the book of Esther, it does not shy away from these complications. In that sense, it's very honest and realistic. This is what real life is. See, this, this is what the book of Esther says. Haman gets promoted to the very, very top, just next to the king. He gets all the power and resources he needs to, to, to fulfill his malicious plans. But the more you get to know this Haman, the more repelled you are with this guy, right? Notice verse 2, it says, the king had to command people to bow to Haman. Now, you know that in traditional Eastern cultures, hierarchy is big. And it's almost natural. There's an urge to bow to anyone who is superior than you, anyone older than you, anyone, in a social, anyone in, with a higher social position than you. It's almost natural, right? Maybe, maybe you've seen this in Korean shows or Japanese anime, right? So for the king to have to command this, there must have been a general lack of respect for this guy. He's the office jerk. He's the guy that nobody likes. And by the way, Haman must have been particularly obnoxious to insist on it. Now, one man, though, named Mordecai, refused to give respect where respect was not due. And this infuriates Haman. So Haman decides on a plan of revenge. I'm not just going to kill this guy. I'm going to kill his entire race, his entire community. It's no wonder that people have often compared Haman to Hitler, or perhaps Hitler to Haman. Because if there's one guy who should not get power and succeed, it's this guy. But in the book of Esther, without any apology, without any explanation, it simply says, Haman rises to the top, and his plan is flawless. Isn't that what? complicates our trust in God, especially in, in real life. This is exactly what happens, is it not? There, there are no explanations. There are no apologies for the complications of life. It just happens, whether we like it or not, whether we understand it or not. And to be honest with you, I don't have any cut and dry answers for you to explain that away, and neither does the book of Esther. The book of Esther simply affirms, along with the rest of scriptures, that yes, life is messy and full of irony, that evil does succeed, that goodness does fall flat on its face, that troubles do overwhelm us almost on a regular basis. And there seems to be no rhyme or reason to all of this. But the book of Esther also affirms with the rest of scriptures that through all that, God remains sovereign and good. That in the end, God shall make all things right and save. That there is purpose behind the providence. There is redemption beyond the danger. But before we get there, we need to stay with the chapter 3 of Esther. Because Esther insists that there is a chapter 3 in our lives where evil gets the upper hand and troubles overwhelm us, and danger seems imminent and certain. 
But it also insists that despite that, we have to believe in the goodness of God. To believe not by what we see by sight, but by faith in the hidden God. The book of Esther says that there is a chapter 3, but, chap but the story does not end there. We are still in the middle. That in the end, God shall make all things well. But we do not know, no we do not know how this will play out. We shall have to trust in the middle. But in the meantime, here's what we do know. Here's what we do know. Because the Bible tells us that sometimes, perhaps not always, but sometimes God allows these complications to push us over into a point of decision. I mean, think about Esther for a moment here. If chapter 3 never happened, if Haman never rose, what would happen to Esther? She would remain queen the rest of her life, doing nothing and becoming nothing but a sex symbol, right? That's all she is. But God allows Haman to rise, and through this, Esther would also rise to the occasion. She becomes, from this beauty queen for the masses, into this biblical model for the saints. In chapter 2, she was get, busy getting pretty in the harem. But in chapter 3 happens, and the rest of the story shows us that Esther becomes this model of courage and sacrificial service. All because of this point of decision, which you and I also go through in this life. God allows hairy and messy complications to overwhelm us where there are no answers to be found but there is a decision to be made will we do nothing and become nothing stuck in chapter 3 until death just overtakes us or will we trust God and rise to the occasion see that decision has to be made and it's not easy this is not easy you and I know this is not easy and so what many of us do is we don't want to stay here, but we don't want to do this. So many of us would resort, perhaps unconsciously, perhaps unknowingly, we resort to what competes against trusting God fully. Here is the alternative. Here's the easier way. It's not to trust God. It's now to use God to my advantage. Now, what do I mean? Well, Let's look at Haman, because again, Haman brings this out for us. First of all, notice that in verse 7, it says that once Haman decided that he was going to kill and annihilate the Jewish people, he started casting lots. Day after day, month after month, he actually waits one whole year for the lots and the and the stars to align, so to speak, so that the powers of fate, F-A-T-E, would ensure his success, right? And then in verse 8 to 11, it says, when that day came, Haman goes to the king with his plan. And Haman is very persuasive. After all, he's been working on this presentation for one whole year now. He goes to the king and he says, there is a group of people who do not obey the king's laws. And before the king could ask for any details or verify any accusations, Haman quickly adds, O king, if you give me your permission, 
a huge chunk of that wealth will go into your treasury. Now you have to understand, at that point, the Persian king had depleted the treasury because of a disastrous campaign in Greece. And Haman knew this. Haman knew this. And he uses this to hook the king into his plan. And Haman, by the way, notice, he makes it look like that he's doing this for the king's profit, that he's serving the king, when in fact, this plan only weakens the king's position. It undermines him. Because all this plan does is destroy an entire group of productive people in his empire. That's why if you notice at the end of the chapter in verse 15, it says that when this plan was approved and announced, the city of Susa was thrown into confusion because it makes no sense. There's no good reason or no good, no good outcome to this plan. But Haman is tricky. He makes it look like that he's serving the king when in fact all he's trying to do is to get his power to serve me. It's to give me what I want, revenge. Now, when you and I step back here, and we try to evaluate it now about this guy, Haman, we can say, you know what? Haman is theologically wrong for believing in superstition. He is morally wrong for doing these things. And yes, as God's people, we ought to pursue a biblical theology and an ethical morality. But here's what I want you to know, that you can have both of that and still be like Haman at the core. At the core, you're still using God rather than trusting Him. See, what competes against our trust in God is not wrong theology or wrong morality, it's wrong humility. See, if you look at Haman, just look at Haman. How does Haman look at life? How does Haman approach life? Haman is smart enough to know that there are powers greater than him, right? There's the power of, of faith and the Persian king. But Haman is arrogant enough to try and use those powers for his sake, to serve himself, to get them to do what he wants. So he channels the powers of faith, he manipulates the king, and he, dis and he, and he puts them all together to serve his agenda. He admits that there is a power greater than him that can do things that he cannot do. But he thinks, you know what? This is a stupid power. It's a dumb power. It's a force that I can control and handle to my ends. And the problem comes when we operate like that to a certain degree towards God. And all of us do that, even Christians. See, we say that, oh, wow, we have learned the right theology to say that God is a sovereign God. But so few of us have truly learned the humility to come and let God be God instead of using Him and making Him bend to our liking. And so what we do is, we do the things that God wants so that God would do the things that I want. I go to church, I pray, I read the Bible, I'm a religious person, I'm in ministry, I'm a moral person, and therefore God. 
don't you think I deserve this? This blessing? Would you arrange my life in such a way? See, in this way, we are like Christian versions of Haman. We make it look like we're serving the king. When in fact, what we really want is his power to serve me. See, that core of being like Haman, it's there. And you could add the proper theology, good. You could add the proper morality, wonderful. But unless you have the proper humility, then we will always try to use God rather than serve God, rather than trust God. We're always going to try to manage Him rather than trust Him like a little child through the ups and downs of life. We need to learn the proper humility to see that God is not some powerful force to manage, to exploit. God is not some little stream of water that we can regulate and redirect to our plans. God is more like a massive tsunami over the sands of human history, dominant and unstoppable. And unless we see that and admit that, we'll never get there. Because God is not some dumb king that we can get into our plans by saying the right things and doing the right things. He cannot be controlled like that. He cannot be tamed like that. He cannot be utilized or domesticated. He can only be worshipped. And unless we get down to that humility, to let God be God, to, to accept God as God, then you and I will always struggle with the providence of God upon our lives. Because when bad things happen, then I'm going to become bitter with Him, with myself, or with other people. But when good things do happen, what happens to me? I become more arrogant. I become more self-centered. And in either case, I am Haman. Isn't that what Haman, isn't that what happens to Haman in chapter 3? And see, unless that core of Haman inside us melts and is removed, then we can do all the things in the Christian life, but we will never truly worship. What then do we need to complete that trust in the providence of God? Now, in a sense, <laughs> this is all we're going to keep talking about throughout this whole series. But let's just focus here in chapter 3 because I did mention at the beginning that you can find God everywhere in the book of Esther. So where is God in this chapter 3? Here's where I found Him. And here's what completes the circle of trusting God. It's in verse 1, right at the very beginning. It says, Haman only rose after these things. What things? What things? It's the things that God had done beforehand to accomplish salvation today. See, before chapter 3, there were chapters 1 and 2. Before Haman rose, God had already put the right people into the right places at the right time. In the next few chapters, in the next weeks, we're going to see Esther and Mordecai rise to the occasion and save the Jewish people. 
But the only way that they could do that was because God had already made chapters 1 and 2. I mean, just think about it. How could Esther, a woman, a young girl, a Jewish exile, how could she save the Jews from the king's power? Well, because by some coincidence, she becomes the Persian queen. Well, wait a minute. How, how, how did she become the Persian queen? Well, because by some coincidence, she was born with beauty. And because by some coincidence, she was an orphan. And Mordecai raised her up and guided her through the next few chapters. And by some coincidence, Esther won the favor of everyone, especially the king who was looking for a queen. Well, wait a minute. Why was the king looking for a new queen? Well, because by some coincidence, the previous queen disobeyed the king's ridiculous command. Well, where did that ridiculous command come from? Well, because by some coincidence, the Persian king decided to spend 180 days of ridiculous celebration and decided it, by some coincidence, to extend it seven more days. And in those seven days, out came the ridiculous command. And on and on and on and on and on it goes. Just a long string of random, seemingly unrelated events, all now forming perfectly to form this long line of salvation for the Jewish people. You might say, ah, oh, what a great story. What, what a great sequence of coincidences. Or you might say, ah, what a great God whose hands formed chapters 1 and 2 to form this line of salvation for the Jews in chapter 3. See, this is the kind of spiritual sight that we need to see what God has done beforehand to save us in the present moment. To see that the grace of God has already been operating in our lives before we even said our prayers, before the trouble arrived, before we even thought of God. He's been working. He's in His providence. He's been arranging our lives to get us through today. See, there are people in your lives, perhaps events or experiences or hurts and blessings and challenges, all of that is forming a web of coincidences that is now securing for you a line of blessing and grace to get you through this week. If I may ask you, think to yourself, what just happened to you this past week? What is about to happen in this week? And why are you now here, hearing this message? And why, may I ask, are there certain words and phrases said this morning that are remaining stuck in your heads when 99% of those, the others, are just going to be gone by the end of the week? Why do those words remain with you? Uh, you might say, ah, oh, you know, it's because of my history, my psychology, my biochemistry, my sociology, coincidences. Or you might say, it's God's sovereignty guiding all that 
to get me through today. In our clearest moments, in our most sober spiritual conditions, we, we get a glimpse of this, do we not? We, we start to see, oh, wow. But if we're being honest, most of the time, we don't see this. We don't see this providence of God in our lives, not because, by the way, not because it's too hidden to identify, not because it's too small to see, but because it is too massive to recognize. We don't even recognize this because it's too big. I mean, think about it like this. You and I are in this room right now. I'm standing here. You are in your seats. And it seems like we are motionless. But the truth is, we are revolving around the solar system at incredible speeds circling around the sun. And your life right now might seem motionless, like the hand of God is not there working. But the truth is, you and I are standing on massive realities that the providence of God is bringing through to bring us home through the complications of life. The question is, how then do we begin to see this reality? How can we stay awake and clear to the grace of God working providentially in our lives? And here's the key. The key to see God's providence is to see through God's Son. We start to see God in all things when we look through Christ in all things. And here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. Just look at the story of Esther. You look at the story of Esther and say, wow, God's hands arranging and forming this wonderful story of salvation. But this is not a separate story. Esther's story is part of our story. Because the Bible reveals to us that every story from Adam to Abraham to David to Esther to Mary and so on, all of them, each story formed and arranged by the hands of God, all of them seemingly unrelated stories somehow connect perfectly to form this long, strong line of salvation that finally brings us Christ. The perfect salvation, the ultimate salvation, the source of every spiritual blessing. See, the Bible tells us, it reveals to us that every strand of God's providence from the beginning converges and concentrates into this singular person of Christ our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and through Him, salvation and grace and blessings break out into our lives. See, Esther's story shows us that in God's providence, He sends Esther to save the Jews. But it's, it's a marker to the much larger story being told that God in His providence sends Christ to save not just people like Esther, but even people like Haman, even people like you and me, even people whose cores are like Haman. And once we focus, just focus there on God's Son and realize that the entire intention of the providence of God from the very beginning 
is Jesus. It's Jesus for you. It's Jesus for you to save you from your sins. It's Jesus for you to turn your curse into blessing. It's Jesus for you to turn wrath into joy. Once we see that, that is what melts the core into humility. And we let God be God. If that is your intention, Lord, if that is all you're doing in the providence throughout creation and history to bring Christ to me, then Lord, I'm no longer here to use you. I'm no longer here to manage you. I am here to worship you. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we live in a world of grace, and most of it I, we do not even recognize or see, but we stand on them, and you move us through them, and we breathe in them, and we live in them. Father, thank you. Open our eyes to see the riches all around us that you have provided to bring us through today at the present moment. Father, we thank you that in your providence you sent Christ for us to bring us home. So Lord, we thank you. Forgive us, Father, for the times we tried to use you rather than stand amazed at you. Have mercy, Lord, for the times we tried to make you serve me. So here I am, Father, presenting myself to serve you because you deserve my worship. So here we are, Father, as a church. May you find our response pleasing in your sight and use us to your glory to bring Jesus to everyone else. Thank you, Father. We love you, Father, and we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.